welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of the podcast, we will discuss recent developments relating to the work by the OECD and the G20 to reach a global consensus on a two-pillar approach to tackling the challenges of the digital economy, or so-called BEPS 2.0. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be rejoined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Michael Plowgen and Marcus Hayland. Michael is a principal with me in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Prior to joining KPMG, Michael served as an advisor at the OECD on the BEPS project and before that as an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. Marcus is a managing director in KPMG's WNT Economic Valuation Services Practice. He has recently rejoined KPMG after serving as an advisor at the OECD on BEPS 2.0. Michael and Marcus joined me on the podcast in April of this year to discuss BEPS 2.0. Much has happened since then. Michael and Marcus, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Gary. Great to be back. Thank you, Gary. On July 1st, 130 of the 139 countries of the inclusive framework of the OECD approved a statement reflecting an agreement on a framework for Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. Two additional countries have since joined the statement bringing the total to 132. And most recently on July 10th, the G20 finance ministers met in Venice, releasing a communique that also endorsed the plan. In general, Pillar 1 would create a new taxing right for market jurisdictions that expands beyond physical nexus. Under Pillar 1, a portion of the in-scope multinationals residual profit, so-called amount A, would be allocated to market jurisdictions on top of the amount allocated to that jurisdiction under existing transfer pricing rules. Pillar 2, on the other hand, would create a global minimum tax, which would stop, in the words of some of its proponents, the race to the bottom. Pillar 2, in in particular, its Income Inclusion Rule, or IIR, draws its inspiration from our guilty. Under the IIR, low-taxed income of a subsidiary would be topped up in the hands of its parent. Pillar 2 also includes the Under-Tax Payments Rule, or UTPR, which acts as a backstop to the IIR by allocating any top-up tax not picked up by an IIR that is because the jurisdiction of a parent of a low-tax subsidiary has not adopted an IIR to other members of the group through the disallowance of deductions. The UTPR has inspired the Biden administration's SHIELD proposal, which we discussed at length in an earlier episode of this podcast. As should be obvious by now, there's somewhat of a feedback loop here between U.S. tax reform and the work at the OECD. In any case, the IIR and UTPR are collectively known as the GLOBE rules. Another element of Pillar 2 is the Subject Tax Rule, or STTR, which would turn off treaty benefits for payments subject to low nominal rates in the hands of the recipient. Marcus, Treasury Secretary Yellen called July 1st an historic day for economic diplomacy, and we've heard similar praise from other 
finance ministers. The recent developments of the OECD and G20 are clearly important, but could you give our listeners a dose of reality here, some context? Is this a done deal? So I think the statement from the inclusive framework on July 1st represents very significant progress in the negotiations at the OECD on both pillars one and two, which have been ongoing for more than two years and and as it relates to pillar one, all the way back to the first BEPS project in, in 2013. So, you know, what does this mean? I think what it means is there is very significant political momentum behind the work right now, and the inclusive framework is now much closer to a comprehensive final agreement. I don't think it's wrong to call the statement historic in the sense that it shows a willingness from a large number of governments to deviate from the longstanding principles of international taxation, including, of course, the arm's length principle in the traditional permanent establishment standard as it relates to Pillar 1 for at least a portion of in-scope companies' profit. It also shows agreement on the concept of a country-by-country minimum taxation regime. Both of those things seem like a big deal. There are some countries that have not yet joined the agreement, but the level of support is growing. Um, And in most cases, the holdouts are objecting to aspects of Pillar 2, which does not necessarily require support from all countries. You asked, is this a done deal? Uh, I think no doubt there's tremendous political momentum behind the work right now. And as I noted, it seems to be growing. Uh, And so I do expect that the inclusive framework will get to a comprehensive final agreement, but we're not there yet. What remains is a mountain of technical work on both Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. There are also a number of political hurdles to overcome. Assuming the inclusive framework can resolve all these technical and political issues, Next is the challenge of actually implementing these rules, noting particular difficulties in the U.S. with respect to Pillar 1 and the EU with respect to Pillar 2. So no, it is not yet a done deal, but the statement was a big step. When we talked in April, we reviewed the OECD reports on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 published in October of 2020. These so-called blueprints reflected the technical work that the OECD inclusive framework had completed up to that point. I want to focus first on Pillar 2, since Pillar 2 has clearly been the focus for the Biden administration and a major impetus for the U.S. to seek a global agreement. Michael, based on the July 1st statement, what has the G20 inclusive framework agreed upon as it pertains to Pillar 2? And how is this agreed upon framework similar to or different from the Pillar 2 framework described in the blueprint? Yeah, I'd say the statement seems to be largely consistent with the Pillar 2 blueprint, but there are a number of key developments and surprises. And in the two and a half pages they have on Pillar 2 in the statement, they obviously couldn't have the kind of detail that they had in the almost 250 pages of the Pillar 2 blueprint. So there are actually a lot of issues on which the statement is silent, and it's it's often hard to tell exactly what that means in terms of are they keeping the blueprint approach? Are they doing something different or, or not doing anything at all? But in, in terms of what is actually in the statement, the headline has to be the rate for the GLOBE rules, which are the rules, as you said, that are, are similar to the U.S. guilty. The G7 had agreed on a rate of at least 15 percent, but Ireland and Hungary had, had publicly raised concerns about a rate at that level before the meeting of the inclusive framework. And it wasn't clear that the inclusive framework was going to be able to agree to a rate at that level. Ultimately, they did come out with the statement which sets the rate for the globe rules at at least 15%. 
Ireland, Hungary, and, and several others did not sign on to the statement, and, and that uh, we understand is one of the, the key reasons. Another key development is the treatment of the subject to tax rule. The STTR is a treaty rule, as you said, that would turn off treaty benefits for payments subject to a low nominal rate in the hands of the recipient. And prior to the statement, I don't think a lot of people had really given the STTR a lot of focus. The statement says that inclusive framework members that apply a nominal corporate rate below the STTR minimum rate, which is going to be set at between seven and a half percent and nine percent that those members will implement the sttr into their treaties with developing countries when asked and the sttr is also according to the statement creditable against the other pillar two rules the globe rules and those are, are pretty significant developments because they mean that the sttr comes first in terms of rule order and that it's mandatory for countries to include it when requested it's not clear exactly how mandatory it will be but but clearly those are, are significant developments. The statement also made progress on the substance carve-out, which would provide an exclusion for a deemed return on tangible assets and payroll, somewhat similar to the QBI deemed return in, in U.S. guilty. It also refers to an exclusion for international shipping income, a number of other safe harbors, a de minimis exclusion, and a possible exclusion for multinationals that are in the initial phase of their international activity. Those are things that are not in the guilty regime. And as we know, the, the Biden administration has proposed to eliminate the return on QBI. So all of these are likely to create differences between Pillar 2 and the U.S. regime. And it might make Pillar 2 less effective in ending the race to the bottom on corporate tax rates, which has been a key priority for the Biden administration. Lastly, a big thing in the statement is the timeline. So the statement says that we'll have a detailed implementation plan by October with countries bringing Pillar 2 into their domestic laws in 2022 and effective in 2023, which is a really fast timeline here. Yeah, that timeline sounds really tight. Marcus, what are some key design details in Pillar 2 that are still left to iron out by October 2021? There are a long list of details that are left to resolve, but I think three of them really stand out. So first is the treatment of timing differences. Second is, as Michael has alluded, the, the final design of carve-outs and exclusions. And then the third is the design of the under-tax payment rule generally. And so focus first on timing differences. The blueprint used a carry-forward approach, but that was widely criticized during the OECD public consultation process as overly complicated and ineffective in doing its job of managing timing differences. I understand the working party may be looking at a modified deferred tax accounting model as an alternative to the carry forward approach. This approach would effectively include deferred tax items in the numerator of the jurisdictional effective tax rate calculation with maybe some restrictions which I think in general that would be welcomed by many multinational groups, particularly those with large timing differences, such as the financial services industry and the extractives industry. But I think there are still some countries, including potentially the United States, that are reluctant to go in that direction. So that will need to be resolved likely between now and October. As far as carve-outs and exclusions, as Michael has referenced, the statement provides sort of a general exclusion for a formulaic substance-based 
carve out, but the language in several places in the statement indicates that there are other carve outs and exclusions still being negotiated, including the exclusion from multinationals in the initial phase of their international activity and potentially even broader carve outs to limit the impact on MEs that are carrying out real economic activities, as it's said in the statement. So there does seem to be quite a bit of negotiation left to do there, and the technical work will need to be done to support how those carve-outs are ultimately um, operate in practice. Turning finally to the under-tax payment rule, the language in the statement seems to leave the design pretty much wide open in terms of the allocation keys that would be used for the under-tax payment rule. There has been some discussion about abandoning the allocation keys in the blueprint, which is generally based on intra-group expenditures, primarily on complexity grounds, and in moving instead towards a substance-based allocation key, potentially payroll and tangible assets within a jurisdiction. So that, you know, again, needs to be bottomed out, presumably between now and October. There's also important questions about caps including a cap potentially for the ultimate parent jurisdiction, which was provided in the blueprint, but not specifically mentioned in the statement. Turning to Pillar 1, Marcus, same question that I asked Michael with respect to Pillar 2. What has been agreed upon and how is this different than or similar to the framework described in the blueprint? So uh, unlike Pillar 2, which we heard was largely consistent with the blueprint, at least in some of the key areas, the statement from the OEC on Pillar 1 diverges from the blueprint in several material respects. Most significantly, the statement departs from the blueprint as it relates to the scope of Amount A. In particular, the blueprint defines scope by reference to activities and we had automated digital services and consumer-facing businesses as the terms that we were using under the blueprint. Whereas the statement eliminates that entirely and instead defines scope using a quantitative thresholds, 20 billion of revenue and a 10% profit before tax margin are the quantitative thresholds that are used in the statement. These thresholds are intended to focus amount A on a relatively small number, approximately 100, of very large and highly profitable multinational groups. While moving towards a quantitative-based approach was a big change relative to the blueprint, it was also widely expected following a, a leaked U.S. Treasury proposal to the steering group in April, which embraced a quant scoping approach. What was perhaps less expected is that the statement provides for a lower revenue threshold, 10 billion, after seven years, assuming successful implementation. This would bring in a much larger number of companies within scope. By my estimate, it's approximately triples the initial scope. I think that feature surprised some people and has raised the question whether amount A is a targeted solution for a relatively narrow problem as it is, has been advertised or whether it is really a, a test drive for formulary apportionment on a more broad basis. There are also important differences to point out with respect to sectoral exclusions. So the statement provides an exclusion for extractives and regulated financial services, but not for several other industries that were previously excluded under the blueprint, including infrastructure and construction, airline and shipping businesses. There also seems to be important deviations with respect to the marketing and distribution safe harbor, which is designed to combat double counting in jurisdictions that are already earning residual profit under current transfer pricing policies. Under the blueprint, the safe harbor took account of the residual profit earned within a jurisdiction for just marketing and distribution activities, hence the name. 
whereas the language in the statement seems to suggest potentially an expansion of the safe harbor to consider all residual profits of an m within a jurisdiction, and perhaps that reflects the wider scope for Mount A. So as you can see, the Pillar 1 blueprint was largely left behind. If I had to point to something that was consistent with the blueprint, I would point to the tax base, which uses consolidated financial accounts, both in the statement and in the blueprint. In terms of the timeline, the statement provides that the MLI through which the amount A would be implemented will be developed and, and then open for countries to sign in 2022, with amount A then coming online, same timeline as Pillar 2, which is 2023. And I would have the same comments as Michael with respect to the timeline, which is it does seem quite ambitious. Secretary Yellen recently remarked that Pillar 1 is on a slightly slower track than Pillar 2. In particular, she noted that the details of Pillar 1 remain to be negotiated and may not be ready for consideration by Congress until spring 2022. Michael, does that mean that Pillar 1 is on the back burner? <laughs> no, uh, definitely not. Um, Pillar 1 is, is not on the back burner. It's fair to say Pillar 1 is not as developed as Pillar 2 at this point. But as Marcus said, that's largely because we had a fundamental shift in the scope of Pillar 1, and that impacts all the other rules in Pillar 1. But at the, at the same time, they've set this time frame for implementation of Pillar 1 to be effective in 2023. And that means that they have to agree on all the remaining issues, develop a multilateral treaty, and have that treaty ready for signature by spring of, of 2022, uh, according to Secretary Yellen. So they've actually committed to a huge amount of work on Pillar 1 in a very short time. So I, I don't think it's fair at all to say it's on the, the back burner. And what's driving this timeline, and is it realistic? Well, if you think about this like a normal tax treaty or a normal project, then no, the timeline is not realistic. But this is not a normal tax project. It's extremely high profile politically, and the timeline is set the way it is for important political reasons. Most obviously, getting Pillar 1 implemented in the U.S. is critical to two important goals. So first is the withdrawal of DSTs and other unilateral measures. Without a deal on Pillar 1, withdrawal doesn't happen, and, and uh, withdrawal of those measures is a, a key goal for the U.S. Second, in order to get some countries on board with Pillar 2, Pillar 1 needs to be implemented. A number of countries have tied these together. Um, and as we all know, we have uh, midterm elections in the U.S. next year, which could result in divided government. So I think it's being viewed as essential to get Pillar 1 implemented before those elections. I should also note it's, it's not just about the U.S. There are several other key countries that have elections in the next year to, to 18 months. So getting the deal actually implemented before those elections is a key objective here. Let's turn to the remaining technical challenges with respect to Pillar 1. Michael, under Pillar 1, residual profit that is amount A would be allocated to market jurisdictions based on in-country sales. How would we determine the amount of those in-country sales? Well, the revenue sourcing piece of this is a huge issue that they're going to have to resolve. The statement just says that those rules will be developed. And we know they will be different than traditional sourcing rules because they're, they're trying to implement a destination-based principle, which looks at where goods or services are used or consumed. 
And the blueprint had developed some pretty detailed revenue sourcing rules along those lines, but they were limited to the scope in the blueprint, which was automated digital services and consumer-facing businesses. With the revised scope of Amount A, they're going to need revenue sourcing rules for every kind of transaction, and that's a heavy lift. One place that they might look for some ideas in that regard are the FIDI regulations, which also use a destination-based principle. And, And in fact, the blueprint revenue sourcing rules were actually very similar to some of the principles that we saw in the FIDI regs. One of the key differences here is that the FIDI regs are to claim a benefit. So if you can't determine the destination under those rules, you just don't get the benefit. It's a little bit different in pillar one when you have to establish source to be able to apply the system at all. So I think they're going to need to go beyond the FIDI rules for sure. Another significant issue will be avoiding double taxation. Marcus, if a market jurisdiction is permitted to tax residual profit that under general tax principles would be treated as sourced in another country. How would we ensure that the same item of income isn't taxed by both countries? So the statement indicates that double taxation will be relieved using the exemption or credit method. The tricky and I think politically contentious part of this is developing the rules to identify the paying entity and therefore the jurisdiction that would be required to actually relieve the double tax. The blueprint included a multi-step approach for identifying those paying entities, and that included an activity test, a profitability test, a market connection test, so it was quite complicated. Whereas the statement seems to indicate that the paying entity would be those that earn residual profit. So that seems much more streamlined than the blueprint in the sense that some of those steps that I mentioned, such as the activity test, seem to have been eliminated. The obvious question here is what is residual profit and how would that be determined? Applying a facts and circumstances approach to that seems complicated and also challenging to apply in a consistent manner across the full 139 jurisdictions. So it seems likely that residual profit for this purpose will be determined on a more formulaic basis, perhaps following the same approach as the Pillar 2 approach to determining excess returns. That is anything above a return on payroll and tangible assets could be considered residual profit. You then get into questions about what if there are multiple entities with residual profits, how do you allocate it amongst them? So you can see there's agreement that double tax should be relieved, that's in the statement, but there's still a lot of work to do to figure out who actually has to do the relieving. Based on statements from the Biden administration, the primary motivation for the U.S. to agree to Pillar 1, which is at best revenue neutral for the U.S. and at worst a significant revenue loser, appears to be twofold. First, to get other countries to sign up to Pillar 2, which would in turn make it easier for the Biden administration to increase the guilty rate while minimizing competitiveness concerns. And second, to encourage the elimination of certain unilateral measures, particularly DSTs, which the Biden administration, like the Trump administration before it, believes discriminates against U.S. companies. Marcus, it appears safe to assume that the U.S. would not sign up to the agreement reflected in the July 1st statement, without assurances from other countries that their unilateral measures would be eliminated. But what is a unilateral measure? Are we only talking about DSTs? How about the UK's Diverted Profits Tax, or DPT? What about the BEAT? 
So there's a lot there. I do think it's clear from the G7 statement in June, as well as the inclusive framework that we just received in July, that unilateral measures are not limited to just DSTs, and they also include other similar measures. How that will be defined precisely, we don't know. What we do know is the U.S. criteria was mentioned in the leaked proposal from April, looks at whether the measure is applied irrespective of the tax treaty framework, is discriminatory, and creates an alternative nexus standard. Arguably, the UK DPT would fall within that definition. BEAT is an interesting question. It may be viewed as a relevant similar measure under Pillar 1 by some other countries, and therefore the U.S. would need to withdraw it. But even assuming it is not a relevant similar measure, it is arguably an even bigger problem with respect to Pillar 2. So one way or the other, BEAT is a problem at the OECD, and its repeal would seem to help clear the way for an agreement. The Biden administration has proposed to repeal BEAT and replace it with SHIELD, which I think would be a welcome development by inclusive framework members. The other notable measure to mention here is the EU digital levy. The EU has stood down on a levy for at least a few months, but it seems likely to reemerge later in the year, presumably after it's been rebranded as something other than a digital levy. So we'll have to keep an eye on that and whether it becomes a, a political obstacle to a deal. I know you didn't specifically ask about this, but I think it's an important political question, which is the question of when would these measures be repealed? It has been reported that the U.S. is pushing for the repeal of these measures at the time of an OECD agreement, which has been mentioned could be as soon as October, whereas other countries are tying the removal of these measures to implementation, which could be you know, 2023 or so. And I think the reason for that is these countries don't want a gap in revenue between collecting the DST and collecting amount A. And I think they also have some concerns about the U.S.'s ability to implement Pillar 1. In parallel with the OECD work is the United States Trade Representative 301 investigations of digital services taxes. The USTR currently has tariffs suspended until December or so against six countries. So what happens when we get to December Say we have an OECD level agreement by then, but these countries still have DSTs in place. Will the U.S. take trade action at that point? I don't, of course, know the answer to that. But the fact that we're still talking about digital services taxes and retaliatory tariffs, even after an OECD agreement, underlines the limits of such an agreement in the need for implementation. We've talked about the many technical challenges ahead Michael, what are the potential political challenges to agreement? There have been some vocal opponents, both in this country, particularly from the Republicans, and outside, most notably Ireland and Hungary. Let's start with the countries that abstained from the July 1st statement. Could the lack of complete consensus be an issue, or do you think the naysayers will fall in line? That's actually a really complicated question. This project is the first big test of the inclusive framework, which, as we all know, is comprised of 139 countries. It's under the auspices of the OECD, and the OECD procedures require consensus for action. And that's generally how the inclusive framework has operated as well. And that's definitely the goal here. But getting consensus among 139 countries on a deal that has this many different issues and lines of division that's a really tall order. It's not clear to me how this plays out at the inclusive framework level. 
right? Again, clearly the goal is full consensus among all 139 countries. And then you've got the G20 finance ministers and leaders to endorse the deal in October, and then countries go and implement. And that could all happen. Alternatively, we might see, I think, something like we saw with the July 1st statement with almost all of the inclusive framework countries signing on, then that getting endorsed by the G20. That also seems like a realistic possibility to me. And that's still an important success of the project, given that the the G20 represents uh, about 90% of global GDP. So really important countries there. And then we have the question of what happens at the implementation stage. Do countries sign on and ratify the Pillar 1 treaty? Do they implement Pillar 2? Uh, And there, I think one of the the key points is that Pillar 2 is explicitly not a minimum standard. In the July 1st statement, they say that countries don't have to implement it. They just have to accept other countries implementing it. And the thing about Pillar 2 is that you don't actually need every country to implement it for it to work. You just need enough big countries with enough multinational headquarters and big enough markets to, to implement it, because if they do, they are the ones that get the additional tax. So if you have a critical mass of countries implementing it, other countries really start feeling the incentive to implement. So I think the big question for Pillar 2 is, will the US, the EU, and the rest of the G7 actually implement? If they do, I think that really starts creating the incentive for others to implement. Um, And in the EU, if they're going to implement by directive, they need unanimity. And, And that's the base case. And as we've mentioned, Ireland, Hungary, as well as Estonia and Cyprus are not yet on board. And could they be persuaded to come on board? Maybe. We know there there are incentives that can be brought to bear within the EU process. But if they don't come on board, we also know that the, the EU has or is looking at at least alternative ways to go about this, which could be enhanced cooperation or a commission recommendation, something like that, to at least get implementation among those member states that, that want to implement. It seems that you need at least the EU and the United States to implement for other countries to come on board and for there to be widespread adoption. Marcus, what about China? Is it important that China goes along with the program? So there there was a lot of speculation going into the inclusive framework meetings uh, at the beginning of this month as to whether China would in fact join the agreement, particularly the concept of a global minimum tax under Pillar 2. In the end, they did, which I think is very significant. As Michael said, Pillar 2 does not require every country to agree to implement it. After all, the U.S. implemented guilty, which, uh, as has been noted, is the U.S. counterpart to the income inclusion rule in 2017 without any other country, including China, doing anything. But China is obviously a huge market and also home to it an increasingly large number of multinational groups. So it seems to be an important part of that critical mass that Michael talked about. So while it may not be a strict requirement that China comes along, it does seem important to the ultimate success and implementation of these rules. I think getting China on board, it does seem that there was perhaps a price to that. In particular, the very last sentence in the statement that we've referenced a few times now about excluding multinationals in the initial phase of their international activity Depending on how exactly that exclusion is designed, and we've mentioned that technical work is required here, the effect of that could be to exclude a large number of Chinese multinationals from the scope. Because China is such a large market that many of the multinationals that are headquartered there 
can have upwards of 90 plus percent of their revenue in the domestic Chinese market. And so getting them on board may have required this exclusion, which could have the effect of of actually excluding a large number of Chinese-based firms. Let's turn to U.S. domestic considerations. Republicans in both the House and the Senate have pretty clearly signaled their lack of enthusiasm for BEPS 2.0. We talked at length on previous episodes about the legislative proposals in the Biden Green Book, which include proposals that would implement Pillar 2 in some respects by way of modifications to guilty and the transition from beat to shield. I think it's fairly clear that the Biden administration, if it can keep all 50 Senate Democrats in line, can pass these changes through the process of budget reconciliation on a pure party line vote. But Pillar 1 seems to be a significantly harder lift since it appears that Pillar 1 will need a multilateral instrument to implement. Specifically, while the U.S. can override its own treaties by legislation under the last-in-time principle, most other countries would need to amend their treaties with the U.S. to permit them to tax the amount A income of a U.S. resident that lacks an in-country permanent establishment. Historically, in the U.S., tax treaties have needed ratification in the Senate, so 67 senators would need to vote to ratify. Given the current political climate, that seems highly unlikely to happen. Michael, isn't this the larger-than-average elephant in the room? Does that mean Pillar 1 is dead on arrival? Well, I don't think it's totally clear at this stage. Rebecca Kaiser, who is now with the Treasury Department, wrote an article a few years ago arguing that tax treaties actually shouldn't go through ratification because that conflicts with the origination clause of the Constitution, which requires that all bills raising revenue must originate in the House. Now, the traditional view has been that treaties don't raise revenue because they don't allow new taxing rights. That's been an argument that they don't conflict with the origination clause. Here, the the Pillar 1 treaty would potentially involve a, a new taxing right. At the same time, the U.S. has entered into other agreements known as congressional executive agreements that other countries view as treaties and that are not subject to ratification by the Senate, but are approved by both the House and the Senate on majority votes. And that would be consistent with this idea that tax treaties ought to originate in the House as revenue measures. Now, that idea obviously is controversial, and there would still be questions about whether you'd need 60 votes in the Senate or whether reconciliation could be used. But it's likely that all of those issues are being explored right now. Marcus, assuming the OECD process is successful, what does that mean for the future? What are the second order ramifications? You mentioned that Pillar 1 could be viewed as a test drive for global formulary apportionment. Could you unpack that? Also, should we expect tax rates to rise across the board? Will the race to the bottom be replaced by a race to the top? Let me start with Pillar 1. Amount A does effectively accept that the arm's length principle isn't up to the job in every circumstance and pushes us towards a more formulary approach to profit allocation. I do not think amount A is likely to lead to full-blown formulary of pricing for everyone and with respect to 100% of profit, at least in the next several years. But the expansion of scope to, say, 300 companies after seven years, and if the quantum is, say, 30% over 10%, 
that does put a very large amount of profit on a formulary system already. And if countries are generally happy with that system, then over time it could be expanded to more groups or a larger share of profit. And I would also point to a, a recent proposal by the European Commission that seems to go in that direction of wholesale embracing a formulary approach. The implications of pillar two are harder to predict. There will inevitably be behavioral reactions, both from governments and taxpayers, but it's hard to forecast exactly what those reactions will be, especially because, as we've discussed, core parts of the rule set are still moving, including things like the extent of exclusions and carve-outs. Will low-tax jurisdictions increase their corporate rate to the minimum rate? That would seem an entirely logical behavioral reaction. But if an exclusion is provided for payroll and tangible assets, maybe countries implement a system that, say, uses a 0% corporate income tax rate on the excluded income and a 15% rate on the non-excluded income. But maybe that won't do anything if Pillar 2 computes the effective tax rate before the carve-out. Maybe Pillar 2 provides an incentive to realize low-tax profit in the parent jurisdiction because of special capping rules that apply in respect of the under-tax payment rule. But perhaps the final rules get rid of those capping rules. Maybe governments offer incentives through things like government grants rather than directly through low CIT rates. Pillar 2 has rules around government grants, but what will those rules say? The point is, is that the technical details are really important, and until we know more about what those details are, it's hard to make predictions about the short-term and especially the long-term effects of the rules under Pillar 2. Michael and Marcus, thank you so much for joining us today, and to all of you for tuning in. This fall will indeed be an exciting time, and not only because it will be the start of the Cleveland Browns' march to the Super Bowl, by October, we can expect updates from the Inclusive Framework and the G20 on the technical details of the agreement on Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. And Congress, having returned from its August recess, will be driving forward on tax legislation that could dramatically change the contours of the U.S.'s taxation of international income, including modifications to guilty and changes to or the repeal of the beat. So please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax to stay up to speed on these latest developments. Until our next episode, take care. 